0: Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School in Los Angeles. I'm Michael Benner, your host. And our topic for the week is separation anxiety. Now, we're going to talk about separation anxiety in two very different ways, allied ways, but still very different. One, as you might expect, separation anxiety is a source of the kind of general, non-specific nervousness and apprehension and worry that we often find when we go deeper into problems like social anxiety or agoraphobia or other kinds of phobias, OCD, sleep disorders. Often we find that it's rooted in separation anxiety from childhood, and we'll talk about that. But I'd also like to talk about separation anxiety in a very different way, in, well, a spiritual way, so to speak. And I think you'll find value in this whole idea of separation anxiety. The first 20 minutes or so of this program will be podcast and available streaming through both the iTunes Store and Stitcher for those that are preferring to use your smartphones or or your tablets or other mobile devices stitcher.com will feed the podcast directly to your smartphone and tablet and if it's the podcast you want that's easy to subscribe to for free of course at the itunes store we will continue after that 20 minute mark and do a premium training for our tuition-based students, and that will include a program from our archives, originally recorded three or four years ago by my business partner Steve Snyder and myself in Maui, Hawaii. And that program's called The Longing to Belong. And, of course, we'll continue on this same topic. So... That's what we're up to today. Thank you very much for uh, for being with us. Separation anxiety, I guess the first thing that comes up for me is my recollection of my first day of school. Yeah, I really do remember. I wonder if you do. I know many people find it so terrifying, so, so traumatizing. There was no head start, no preschool when I was a little boy, at least in the little rural town that I grew up in, small town in rural Michigan. So I was fully five years old when I started kindergarten, and that was my first day at school. And my mother walked me down to the corner and across the street. The school was close by, but that didn't really help. The fact that it was literally across the street was of little or no comfort to me. I did not want my mother leaving me there. She was, of course, a stay-at-home mom. I was with my mother 24-7. Dad went to work. Mom stayed home. That's just the way it was when I was a kid. Very few women were working at that time, of course, unless they had to. And so I was used to being with my mother, and when she dropped me off, and I realized that she was going to leave me there, uh, I freaked out, and I cried. I don't think I was the only one crying, as I recall. (laughs) I think there were a lot of little kids that were crying on the very first day of kindergarten, as their moms and, in a few cases, their dads dropped them off at their very first day of school. This is an example of separation anxiety. Now, a lot of what people report as separation anxiety later in life isn't really as reasonable or as understandable. People will say that They've always had a fear that they were going to be abandoned by their parents or an odd feeling that their parents weren't really their parents, that they had secretly been adopted or some other paranoid fantasy and that one day they were going to come home from school and find out that the whole family had moved. Nobody lived there. Or... uh, I remember missing the bus once. We had the summer camp across the street, and once a week we'd get on school buses and go to another elementary school in the city and watch cartoons and movies in the gymnasium, and then you had to get on the bus to go back to your particular uh, school and playground for that summer program that they had. And I used to follow the teacher or the counselor around whenever we were at the remote location because I was always afraid I was going to miss the bus. In fact, one time I did miss the bus because turns out she had plans to go with somebody else. And it was a horrible feeling, the feeling that I missed the bus. Uh, separation anxiety. So, again, a lot of this is... Traceable to childhood, but it's not all as understandable or logical or reasonable as saying, well, I remember my first day of school or I remember that one time that my parents really did forget to come and get me at school. You know, dad thought mom was coming. Mom thought she'd made it clear to dad that it was his day to come and pick you up and there you were, right? It's a horrible feeling. And it's sort of like that film Home Alone where they had so many kids that they went on vacation with all the kids and didn't realize that one of them, Macaulay Culkin, uh, was that his name, I think? The, he was the actor that played that role. He was left home alone. A horrible feeling. Funny movie, but in reality... What a horrible feeling. You know, I've had a number of clients tell me over the years that their anxiety feels like being invisible. And I would say to them, well, what's that like? How does it feel to feel invisible? And as they explain it, more often than not, what it's the result of is being raised in a big family or there may be six or eight children and mom and dad sometimes do in fact forget about you or they forget your name or they call you by the wrong name or you're one of those kids in the middle that doesn't get as much attention as the older kids and the youngest kids the the kids in the middle even if there's just 3 of them sometimes the kid in the middle Suffers from not getting as much attention as child number one and child number three. But if there's four, five, six, seven, eight kids, it's even more likely that those kids in the middle are going to, from time to time, feel lost, feel forgotten, feel invisible, and suffer from this separation anxiety. Now, We know quite a bit more in the last 15 or 20 years about the importance of a baby bonding with its mother at birth. This has not always been understood. If we go back far enough, I think probably when women were delivering other women's babies when we had uh, midwives and medicine women, uh, so-called witches. That word certainly is taken on a negative connotation now, but that's what they were. They were, um, you know, Mother Nature. They were um, earth mothers. They lived close to nature. They understood the use of herbs. Uh, they were healers and... They just understood how nature worked and how things grow and how things heal and how things evolve and they were responsible for the delivery of children. And I think back then bonding was probably better understood. But then as we moved into the 19th and 20th centuries, certainly by the 20th century, We had hospitals, and increasingly babies were born in these buildings full of sick people, delivered by doctors in white coats, men in most cases, and bonding was not that well understood. And so children, immediately upon being born, were often whisked away. They would have, uh, of course... Uh, certain eye drops, I think it's silver nitrate that they put in a baby's eyes. Uh, They clean them up, of course, they care for them, they wrap them in nice warm blankets and put them in uh, incubators until it's time for mom to nurse. But in the last 20 or 30 years, we've come to an understanding, verified by some really good research, that it's just essential. To take that newborn baby and put it on the mother's stomach, to go back to what is natural, likely and commonplace and let that child crawl from the stomach toward the breast and make that contact, make that bond with mom. Here you have this child that grew as a fetus inside this woman knows the smells and the tastes and the, and the fragrances and to take them away under fluorescent lights in a strange place that may be sort of cold. And it's just a cruel thing to do and plants the seeds of separation anxiety. And, I'm not even going to get into the whole controversy of circumcision at this point, which, if it's a religious practice, as in the Hebrew religion, Jewish people circumcise their children for religious reasons, well, that's one thing. They have a right to do whatever they want. But as a matter of public health, there really doesn't seem to be any need for it. I think it's counterintuitive. And to do it without anesthesia, which is usually the case, uh, I think it just sets a child up, a male child, a little boy, for a life of pain, makes him more likely to be frightened, suffer all kinds of anxiety disorders, to have a twisted view of the world as a hostile and violent place, Um, to have such painful and sensitive surgery, though technically minor, performed without anesthesia at such an early age and for no good reason. And it desensitizes uh, the area such that it impedes and interferes with the pleasure of lovemaking in one's sex life. It's just barbaric. Uh, I, I have very strong feelings about that. But most people allow their boy children to be circumcised and never even think twice about it. Um, Many say they had it done because they didn't want the boy to be embarrassed in gym class. And I just don't think that's a very good reason to circumcise your child at birth with no anesthesia. Certainly we don't allow that. We see that as a barbaric practice with women, even though clitorectomies are performed in certain parts of the world. But we see that practice as barbaric. Why Why is male circumcision any less barbaric? Again, allowing for if, you know, you've got to respect people's religions. So if for religious purposes, I mean... Jews and Muslims still refrain, in most cases, from eating pork. And that was a pretty good idea in ancient times when there was no refrigeration. And trichinosis was a real problem. But even though we have refrigeration now, if that's the religious practice, you got to respect that. So the idea of bonding at birth, the importance of putting a baby, a little boy or a little girl, upon birth, immediately on the tummy of the mom, and let that baby bond to make that connection, that is going to significantly reduce the likelihood that this child is going to experience some form of separation anxiety as they get older. Whether it's that first day of school, a fear of missing the bus, so to speak, or that somebody's going to forget to come and get you after school, or the greater fear that at some point you're going to be abandoned by your parents. It's an unreasonable fear, but many people have it. And they carry it then into their adulthood, and it manifests as all kinds of nonspecific anxieties. And again, it's usually traced to that traumatic experience of going to school for the very first time, or, as we now understand much better than before, the importance of bonding in infancy. I, however, would like to use this podcast as an opportunity to talk about separation anxiety in a second way, in a more overarching way. And that's what I would call spiritual separation anxiety. And I think we all suffer from it. It's less about feeling that somebody's going to forget to pick us up or we're going to be abandoned or nobody really loves us to this horrible fear that dwells within virtually everyone. This is my supposition anyway that everybody experiences and suffers from at some level to some degree spiritual separation anxiety and that it manifests as a feeling that we're often not aware of but there it is in the subconscious mind impacting us and and affecting in very subtle ways our overall levels of anxiety and stress and nervousness, worry and apprehension. It's the fear that we're all alone. The crushing, horrible fear, if you come in touch with it fully, that you're absolutely alone. Some people on their first psychedelic experience back in the 60s and 70s when All of this laboratory-grade LSD was available as a result of the CIA experimenting with it, seeking their Manchurian candidate, programs like MKUltra that you may have read about, or if you're old enough, even remember. They bought way too much LSD from Sandoz Labs, thousands of times more than they thought they were buying because... The person that ordered it didn't know the difference between a milligram and a microgram and you dose LSD in micrograms, not milligrams, that's ten to the third difference. (laughs) Three zeros, that's an important difference. So they had a thousand times more than they thought they had and they gave it to the military to use for research. They gave it to university professors and scientists for research. They gave it to the grad students. The grad students would minister these psychological experiments and in many cases would end up dosing themselves and their girlfriends. And besides the experience of feeling sometimes on psychedelics an incredible unity... With the universe, seeing God, so to speak, there were also these freak out experiences of experiencing yourself as ultimately very, very alone. The realization that you're born alone and that you're going to die alone suggests that, in spite of appearances, you're really living your whole life alone and that for all of eternity, you'll be alone. Even if you go to heaven and believe in such a thing, you're going to be an individual in a separated body, in a plane of separated forms. People presume that you're separated in heaven just as you're separated on earth. People and many philosophers and mystics see this as idolatry, but we even separate ourselves from our source. I don't mean mom. I mean divinity, God, the creator, the source, the absolute, the totality of awareness or consciousness. In the West, the... Abrahamic religions, so-called Judaism, its spin-off Christianity and Islam that came a few hundred years later. You have in all three of those religions an image of God as a man on a cloud or above the clouds, a superhero like Superman's dad Jor-El, a superhero In the form of a man, like on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, reaching out from someplace else. Well, if God is a form, a spirit, but a form with a body looking like a human being, an old guy with a beard and a robe, a G over the pocket, a few cigars maybe, You'd say, Michael, that's blasphemy. No, frankly, imagining God as a form, as a man, that would be blasphemy. That's idolatry. And yet, it's the hallmark of the way divinity or the creator, the absolute, is understood in the three major Western religions. It's idolatry to suggest that God is a form, is finite, is limited to a body, which makes the source of all things very separate and very remote, as if God lives very far away. And religions can hasten to add, oh, but God is everywhere. Sort of like Santa can be everywhere at some point during the night. But still, is a jolly old guy in a red suit riding around in a sleigh pulled by flying reindeer. This is the image we have of God. Now, in Eastern philosophies, this is not the case. God is seen, if you will, or conceptualized as spirit, as an ocean that is everywhere equally present, like a cloud or an ocean, air or water that is everywhere. Imagine fish having no idea what it means not to be wet, right? Reality, the universe for a fish, ends at the bottom of the sea and at the surface of the sea. You could argue a flying fish breaks the surface every once in a while. uh, And mammals, like dolphins and whales, certainly do. But uh, you understand my uh, metaphor here, and and birds in the same way. By the way, that's why uh, the subconscious mind, it seems perceives both fish and birds as symbols of spirit because they exist in this everywhere equally present medium that is the ocean or the sky. And that's the way divinity is thought of in Hinduism in Buddhism and Taoism, Confucianism, uh, Vedantism, uh, Shintoism, Sikhism, virtually all of the Eastern philosophies, God is literally spirit, more a magnetic field that's everywhere equally present than a form that is separated and remote. So, when I talk about spiritual separation anxiety... I would have you consider the possibility that if God is not a form, and if you lean into a well-educated rabbi or a priest or a Protestant minister or someone who understands the Koran and Islam and Imam, they will say, no, that's just sort of a metaphor for working class and uh, the less educated And for painting pictures like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, in fact, God is spirit, not form and everywhere equally present. So as far as the best educated and most sophisticated of religious teachers and philosophers all around the world and all religions and philosophies, the source of all material life, the source of all Separated forms is not a form, but a spirit, an energy, or a magnetic field everywhere equally present. And I would have you consider, then, that being incarnated, whether you're reincarnated or only get one shot at it, is a type of separation anxiety. And the good news would be that the feeling that you're all alone is an absolute illusion. Now I want to talk more about this and we'll continue for those of you who are in the tuition based premium training as for the podcast that'll do it for today. Thank you very much for being here. Hope you'll continue to listen using the iTunes store or stitcher for your podcast or streaming these programs every week, right to your smartphone. If you're not getting our newsletter Go to our primary website, the ws.theagelesswisdom.com and click on the free newsletter button. Leave your primary email address with your first name, and if you're in the United States, your zip code. If you're outside the U.S., just put a dot in that zip code field, and you can advance then. Click submit, and you'll begin to get our newsletter every week. And uh, again, thank you so much for being here. Stay tuned for the rest of the program, including The Longing to Belong from our archive featuring Steve Snyder and myself. And for the podcast, people will talk next week. Be gentle, love life, take care of each other. This is Michael Benner.